What's going on, everybody? This is uh, Big McEnroe, a.k.a. Rod Bailey. This is the Peanuts and Corn 2021 podcast. This is the Big McEnroe Brandon series. Um, And this is uh, episode seven. This is our final episode of the series. So we're going to play the last three tracks from the album. And we're going to talk to some more people, which is always really fun for me. So I'm going to talk to uh, Sean Carruthers, who is a legend in the Brandon scene, because he was um, key to having some record stores he he ran the record baron which all the cool people worked at and all the cool people bought their music from and so we talk a little bit about him getting into the music business uh through the um you know through retail and then running the record baron and then finally we talk a little bit about him hooking up farm fresh with a gig with the rio statics so that's lots of fun and then i bring back my good friend tyler sneesby aka dj honeycut to um, kind of close it out talk about a few more memories and finish the series lots of fun uh the record is out it's called brandon it's by me big McEnroe, not McEnroe anymore big McEnroe, and it is on all the streaming services on friday it is on Bandcamp if you want to really support me and peanuts corn records that's a great way to do it and if you're into physical media then cds will be available for pre-order as you hear this and they will ship in a couple weeks so vinyl will see we'll see how it goes but we'll definitely have some cds for the cd heads out there so yes thanks again to ugs meg for hosting this podcast it's been super fun a lot of work i gotta admit but really fun to reconnect with all these great people so now i'm going to reconnect with sean carruthers so let's get right into it uh here we go with sean like where when did you get started in that desire to you know share music with people get it get record source stocked up like um, you know i've heard that you worked at kelly's is that where you got started or tell me where you got started working at a record store and how did that how did that mesh with getting into these weird kinds of music that you really wanted to expose other people to well you know i think uh i was interested in music right from you know being a little kid my uh, dad had a little stash of records underneath uh, the stereo downstairs he never touched them but he had a little stack before, including like an old Dave Brubeck, which just made me go, oh, there's something interesting here right. that I don't know about from listening to the radio. Um, and back back in the day, like you probably remember KX96 in, uh, in Brandon. Oh, yeah. Uh, when I first started, we didn't even have a rock station. It was like an easy listening station and then a bunch of country music. So this was like a real eye opener to me at the time. Yeah. And then I got into things like ABBA and, you know, found a Gary Newman 75 of cars. And, you know, I would just go around as a really annoying twerp of a grade six student asking all of uh, the other students, you know, do you know about this? Hey, what's your favorite band? And just trying to share my passion with music. And all of them are like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you like. So, right. But I carried that through to, uh, you know, just my feel for exploration. I just needed to keep checking out new stuff and just trying to listen to as much as I could. Right. So what do you remember about, uh, like, you know, you said you listened to, you got a Gary Newman 45. <laughs> uh, um, and so how did that progress into, like, where was, where was your first uh, job at a, say a job at a record store or something that would kind of take you to that next level? Well, uh, the first job that I got was at Kelly's Electronics. Um, I had been like scouting all the other stores in the city, just looking for stuff, not really finding much. And then when Kelly's Electronics opened, and for those who don't know Kelly's, 
Uh, it's more an electronic shop where you could buy TVs and stereos and fax machines and things like that. But they all had a small record store, uh, a record department inside the store. And ours was on the second floor. So we were like looking down at all the TVs and Samsung VCRs and all of that stuff. Yeah. It was a very small uh, shop, a very small component of the entire thing and not a whole lot of records, but it's where I first got hired and I was the only one in there for quite a long time, just there part of the time. And I guess the rest of the time people would have to go up there, grab stuff and then bring it downstairs and buy okay. it from the TV salespeople. Right. But that was where I first uh, started like looking at what the catalogs were and trying to steer things into a direction of you know, music that I'd heard on Brave New Waves and via other places like the strange stuff on City Limits on Much Music. Yeah. So you'd, so you'd hear these things and you'd try to get them into Kelly's and you were the only employee of Kelly's. So you're bringing in, yeah, you're just ordering things that you would hear on City Limits and things like that? Yeah, a lot of it was just, I, I would make sure for sure to order stuff for myself uh, if it was available and and try to get a couple other things if people were asking for it. Um, there were definitely a few other people that had that kind of interest yeah. in, in the music, um, that they weren't being served by the other music stores in the city at that point, I don't think. Not not to any great extent anyways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we would. Uh, I would try to get in a few little gems, but you know, at the same time, it was a it was a small component of this, and they were really. I mean, you know, when you're part of a major chain, um, you sort of do what the chain wants you to. So you might want to sell a lot of independent stuff or really out there stuff, but they're going to send you 30 copies of the Michael Bolton record or whatever. Right. And, you, know, you might not sell any, but they're going to load those onto you and then you have to deal with that and then that eats up your budget for all the cool stuff and so was it a busy store like were people going in you know compared to i could imagine it wouldn't be as busy as like a and a and the places that were in the mall where you walked right in no no it was uh it was one of those places that you had to know about and i think people found out about it and i think largely it served the people that were coming in to buy a cd player right yeah so I remember being in there once. So I moved to Brandon in 87 and I remember being in there at least once, but I don't remember being in there a whole lot. So it must have closed not not too long after that. Like would it have closed in maybe 88 or does that sound right? It sounds about right. I think it was only about, uh, if not a full year, it was at least a, a good portion of a year, but it wasn't much more than that. And we were selling this and then one day we came in and uh, you know, all the stuff was gone except for like the counters and they said, Oh, yeah, the whole store was done was done. Yeah, they they had moved our stuff out overnight and the manager was like, Yep, yeah, we're done. <laughs> you don't have a job anymore. Yeah, pretty much.
so then where did you go from there? You, uh, you know, obviously we were, did you look for another record store job right away? No, I continued to be a music store customer for a while, but I was, I had another job at the time at, um, at the hospital doing some uh, filing and secretarial work. Mm -hmm. So it was keeping me busy in the evenings. And uh, then it was it was a while after that when uh, when Record Baron uh, yes. opened up. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we I, I saw that coming in and then I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, this looks good. I wanna get involved in this. And so, yeah, Record Baron is a very important part of me growing up for sure. So talk about like how did that happen it was a chain that was going to come in and then and then you applied or how did that come about yeah so so record baron um i i found out about that i think pretty much the first day they opened their doors and they were setting up so uh, ken the uh, regional or the, the main manager of this thing had come in from from winnipeg and i just sort of rolled in there like oh like give me a job and right he was like yeah m maybe so i uh I submitted my uh, resume to that and he hired me on part-time. I thought, you know, I've managed a record store before. Right. Know, like a record department. Yes. So I figured, you know, I was qualified to run the thing. He was like, yeah, no, cha-cha, you can't do that. Uh, we got this other guy in here that's going to do that. Right. And uh, so I, I worked evenings for a little bit and then I worked uh, some of the days. And uh, yeah, then eventually, then eventually the other guy who is uh, in from Winnipeg as a favor to the company um, decided, yeah, I've had enough of Brandon, which uh, is a theme I've heard running through the podcast. Right. And he moved back and they uh, finally uh, took a chance on uh, putting me into the manager position on that, which I guess was kind of fateful for me that day. It sort of changed my direction. Okay. And how did it change your direction? Well, I was not exactly sure what I was going to do with my life up until that point. And I thought maybe I was going to end up doing like computer science or something to do with English or something like that, be mm -hmm. a professional academic. I had no clue because, you know, in Brandon, there wasn't a ton of opportunity to swing records or just uh, I think at that point there was just uh, one in the Brandon Shoppers Mall and then one in the gallery at that point, I think. Yeah. I think there was an A&A &A in the gallery and then... Um, top 40 in the shoppers mall yeah at, at that point i think and then a and a opened up later in the shoppers mall too but um but yeah it, it was different because you know mall mall record stores are mall record stores they tend to have a much more constricted and top 40 kind of uh view of what sells yeah and the record bearing when I went in there, I saw it was a pretty deep sort of selection. It had a lot more catalog. So a lot of things that you were not exactly top sellers, top hits right at the moment. And it wasn't just a whole pile of greatest hits collections. Yeah. It was, you know, a lot of collections from bands that you'd know and or bands you hadn't really gotten into yet, but you know, were big bands from the past that you really should be a part of anybody's collection. So definitely, definitely piqued my interest uh, to, uh, you know, to be in a place that sort of was a little bit deeper into music than I, it felt like the mall stores were at that point. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, I started working there full time and then I realized, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do computer science. Probably right. would have paid me better in the long run, but I think from an interest perspective. The so music, you enjoyed uh, it? I, I actually really quite enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I mean, what's not to enjoy? You 
sit in a record store and you talk to other people about music and you listen to music all day, hopefully music that you actually enjoy. Which yeah. is another thing that you can't really do in a mall store sometimes because they're going to make you listen to all the hits all the time. Right. So as far as, uh, you know, it being a non, non-mall store, so you're having a little more freedom. So how much were you able to shape what was on the racks? And, you know, like, did you, did you identify like the alternative culture that was kind of growing in Brandon and try and stock up on that kind of stuff or, or, or what? Yeah, we would get to... Oh, I mean, first of all, we would have uh, the staff in there that were all a little bit into that sort of uh, culture already. And they would play their own copies in the store. So we would be listening to Dinosaur Jr. in the store. We'd be listening to you know, Nirvana or whatever before these things were big. And people would come in and say, oh, that's really interesting. What is this? And so we sort of built a word of mouth in that regard. Yeah. But also, you know, through the number of years before, I knew that there was already that collection of people in the city that had those sort of oddball tastes that didn't listen to CKX radio, didn't listen to the country station, that wanted something a little bit off the beaten track. And, you know, they didn't know how to connect with each other necessarily back in those days because, you know, no internet and you would have to sort of know someone who knew someone and then get introduced. But, yeah, I found that just knowing what some of those people liked and starting to bring some of those things in, hearing things on Brave New Waves and bringing some of that stuff in, playing it in the store, getting other people interested in it. Um, it, it really helped build that kind of knowledge. And then the other people would show up in the store and, and the, the weirdos would connect with each other on the other yeah. side of the counter. And and yeah, we, we did get a chance to really build that collection of uh offbeat material in the store so we we did have to bring in the usual stuff like the john cicada and again the michael bolton the stuff yeah. that the main branch wanted us to have in the store just to make the major labels happy but we also had access to a couple of independent catalogs like cargo records or outside and they would send us all of the uh, new release sheets for all these things so i would take a chance on one or two of these uh, items uh, especially if I knew that I wanted a copy or I knew someone who was into the band. Yeah. So I just add them into stock. Someone would buy it and then we'd add a couple more. And uh, I mean, we sort of progressed that way a lot with uh, some of the, uh, the skate punk stuff. So um, we had another guy uh, working in the store, Mike Cockerline, who was oh, really yeah. into the skate punk. Yeah. And so he would listen to this. And so we would bring in like a couple copies of, you know, the new no effects or the, or the lag wagon or screeching weasel or whatever and then he would play them and then people would ask for them and then did i would just start ordering like five copies and then 10 copies and they would all sell out so right so that's another ingredient in the um you know the 90s uh hardcore brandon scene and how it was able to you know be a thing um is having a supply of those records so that's yeah, not just a supply, but also someone like Mike who was really into it and who was knowledgeable about it and uh, who would push it on people uh, either through blasting it at full volume or <laughs> by telling people about it. And so did you uh, did you ever get any backlash from the head office about this or did you ha was that a struggle or was it kind of an organic thing that kind of worked out? Uh, it was mostly an organic thing that worked out. At the beginning, there wasn't backlash per se, but it was more... 
I would get a call every so often. You really wanted 20 copies of this Rio Statics record? Are you sure about that? All right. And I was like, yeah, yeah, just send it along. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and then, and and so you mentioned the staff being a kind of a key thing. Talk about that. Our, our dear friend Tyler worked at Record Baron for quite a while. Um, but talk about some of the people who worked there and uh, and how much that mattered to it being kind of an important hub of you know music lovers. Oh, there were there were a number of people that passed through, and I won't remember all of them, but uh, definitely we we had a a number of staff who each had their own specialty. So like definitely when Tyler came in, he added a lot to the hip hop uh, and jazz knowledge base uh, on the staff and he would play those and, you know, tune people into those. Yeah. Um, we had uh, Jason Neufeld, AKA the Mennonite Bandit. Yeah. And he was really knowledgeable about 90s rock and, uh, and a lot of 70s rock too. So he, uh, got people into a lot of that stuff and he was just very passionate about that although he and i were we were often into the same sort of music the same bands but we were often butting heads about which album was the best album (laughs) so it was like really a scene out of high fidelity in a way yeah um we had um we had ryan fordyce there brad dodds vanessa tyndall um all of them sort of various shades of the different kinds of music that were out there Right. A lot of them were often into the skate punk scene as well. So that, I mean, considering the strength of the skate punk scene and the skater scene in the city, that's not surprising that we had so many people that were into music that ended up at the store too. Right. Joey pulled himself to his feet, pulled his body back up the bank, and looked back down there. So they say Someone in class called me a loser I decided to skip the day Hey, 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 skip the day I tried to look casual sneaking around the back so we were very fortunate to meet the Rio Statics because of you. So can you talk about your, you know, evangelism of Farm Fresh and getting us some of these great gigs? The Rio Statics gig came about because of my love of late night music. So it was sort of indirect sort of thing. So I was driving through the country one night and I started, they, they started playing, I can't remember whether it was Nightlines or whether it was Brave New Waves, but they started playing whale music at that point. And I hadn't heard this. I'd heard bits and pieces of the Rio Statics on uh, Brave New Waves and Nightlines before, and it never really dented me that much, you know, one piece at a time. Yeah. Um, it was also their earlier stuff, which was a little bit less Brian Wilson-y sort of orchestral. Um, but then whale music came on and they just played the whole thing. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Uh-huh. I, I love it. So I just kept driving around so that I could listen to the entire album as they played it. And I was like, okay, I got to find this, got to find this. And I looked around and you know, couldn't find it at the record stores. But then I eventually uh, found a copy of whale music um, at one of the used stores. I can't remember whether it was Jiffy at that point or whether it was the People's Marketplace. Mm-hmm. But I got a hold of this and then I felt really guilty because like, here's this band that I really am learning to love here and I'm buying it used so they get nothing out of that. Yeah. 
And so I, you know, opened the notes up, found the address, and I wrote in and said, hey guys, I really love this album, but I bought it used and I feel guilty. Can I send you some money or something? Yeah. And so Bedini sent me a postcard back saying, yeah, don't worry about that. Um, but if you want, just send me some rare Bad Religion singles or something. Right. And I was like, well, I didn't have any of that either. I could barely find rheostatics at that yeah. point in the city. And uh, I was like, well, I don't have any Bad Religion, but this is just right after I think your first tape had come out. Yeah. And uh, so I sent them a, sent him a copy of the Space EP. And uh, I guess it's sort of... My understanding was it sat on the shelf for a while in their van or something like that, and then eventually they put it in. Yeah. And uh, and then that one thing led to another there. So it was sort of the hookup on that because I felt guilty about <laughs> their album. That's funny. That's amazing. So it wasn't so much... It wasn't even so much that you were just looking to uh, push us necessarily or... Or well, you had a relationship too. with that. I understand clearly, but it wasn't like you were sending our tape to all these outlets. It was more like just the right timing. Yeah. That's even more interesting is the timing was perfect that you that you got a postcard and they said, send us something. And you that was what was handy that you're into. That's unique, obviously, to Brandon. And, you know, next thing you know, we get a call. And, uh, and we ended up playing, well, the first thing was we played with them at the Keystone Center. Yeah. Horrible gig. Um, <laughs> what do you remember about that gig? That gig was, it wasn't horrible for, I think, me and the audience. And, oh, good. Um, and, and watching the show, it was fun, you know, watching watching you guys do your thing. I, I think it's, it's always hard to impress a whole pile of uh, drunk or uh, drunk-leaning uh, university students. But, um, but you know, the, the fans that you had then, the people that already knew you, I, we were all, all up at the front and enjoying the show. So um, I do remember, um, is it before the show or between sets or something like that, hanging out in the, the back of the room where they had their green room just hanging out with the rheostatics and just chatting about various things and talking music and whatnot and um i remember that show there being some drama with the lineup where the rheostatics wanted us to play before them but i think the promoter was friends with another band maybe jerkwater or something i forget what they're called and so i think sounds, we played that sounds right so we played as the doors were opening and because he didn't really want us to play, but the Rios, Rios really wanted us to play. They were insistent. So it was like a compromise. We were playing, but we were playing before the, the promoter's friends band. And so what was frustrating for us was that most people weren't in the room. I know you were in the room and like Newfeld was in the room and all our friends yeah. were in the room because they knew when we were playing. But most people were uh, just sort of starting to like line up to come in and, you know, we're not... So that's why it was, a, and it was there was some drama with that promoter and like some kind of thing going on. But yeah, meeting those guys, mo meeting those guys all in person was amazing. And then, and I think we'd already had made the deal that we were going to go play um, in Toronto with them. That was already a done deal. So it was like we were meeting them, but it was like, okay, we're going to see you soon. And that all happened pretty quickly. Like you say, we put out a tape in December of '94, and we played, I think, September of '95 with them in Toronto. So I think that was in the summer of 95. Um, yeah. 
And I think that also led to uh, to Tyler being on their next album as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I do remember the drama at the show now that you mention it. And I do remember that uh, the Reostatics did go out of their way to at during their set to bring you guys yes. back up on stage. And I, they did one of your songs, I believe. I don't remember. I don't remember that. It's totally possible because that's something they would do or they would just play something and say, do one of your songs or whatever. But um, they might not have been to the point where they would do one of our songs yet. We did that later. Yeah. Um, and then famously we had a, when we played in Toronto, they also would come, Tim wrote a rap about meeting us. I don't know if you've ever heard that demo. I did. Or uh, not I demo, but a live on, version. Just I saw amazing something stuff. On, on YouTube about that. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it, man. Thanks so much. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, same. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Okay, thanks so much for to Sean for, for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate his time and his insight. Uh, okay, I'm going to play a song from the Brandon album now. Uh, this song is called 92, Another Effing Jock. And um, so this song is kind of about, you know, what I'll, I'll get into explaining the song with Tyler right after the break. So let's just have a listen and then you'll kind of understand. This is 92, Another Effing Jock. This is Big McEnroe from the Brandon LP coming out August 6th. It's just another jock, another skater I play the pacifist, I never play the escalator I'm minding my business cause they make me such a hater I guess they are jealous cause I'm rocking so much flavor I doubt it, he's in a hockey jersey Does he want my baggy jeans? My Valley shirt is dirty We live in separate circles so this isn't by the girly I got a scholarship but I'm not considered nerdy Why they try to push me, get up in my business I drive a crappy car, I'm not a symbol of success I'm taking nothing from them, just trying to keep it fresh I keep it on the D-low that I'm acing every test Still they talking to me, get up in my grill Saying things about me, stepping on my shell toes But I got a posse, a Pizza Hut employee Who always got my back, say the word, they're right there for me the great taste of pan pizza is not just for supper anymore, and that's why Pizza Hut is delivering that great taste anytime, hot and to your door, all day long, seven days a week. Just dial 726-0600 anytime, and Pizza Hut will deliver. All right, well, thanks again for joining me, uh, Tyler Sneezeby, a.k.a. DJ Honeycut, and um, thanks for joining me on the final episode of the Brandon Podcast, episode seven. Um, what a great uh, podcast it's been so far yeah I, i've got a lot of positive feedback on it it's definitely something different i think so it led to a lot of funny discussions and you know i got a good picture yesterday on instagram of the uh of the skate crew mm-hmm, i saw that at, yeah that's really uh, skate crew at city hall and i sent it to stefan and he's like holy what am i wearing <laughs> so um um, so I was sort of revisiting the record. So we've got three songs to play today. One of the songs is called, yeah, 92, Another Effing Jock. So that was a song about, um, you know, it was funny. It was like, we talk a lot in the podcast about bullies and, you know, I especially talked about bullies to, uh, Patrick and, um, but it seemed like just as 
we were really kind of finding our stride, which was, you know, we're in grade 12, you and I, and Patrick's kind of in grade 12. I don't know what, you know, what, what he was technically at that point, but it was 1992. So we're zeroing in on, uh, graduating from high school and thinking about going to university and things like that. And it just seemed like the jock pressure, I remember the jock pressure going up at that point where I was getting into more conflict near the end there. Um, you know, I consider it the end because I knew I was probably not going to go to university in Brandon. Um, so I kind of had a, an eye on, you know, moving into Winnipeg in the fall. And it, I remember right around graduation and things like that, getting a lot more bullying happening. Uh, I don't know if you had anything similar, Tyler, but there's this one guy, um, I think his name was Billy or something. He was really on my ass right around that time. And I don't know why, because I didn't really do anything. I was a skateboard kid, obviously. And, you know, I wore big pants and and uh, skateboard t-shirts and I drove a shitty car and I had a girlfriend and I don't know what, you know, it wasn't like I was uh, a player or styling or anything. And I wasn't skateboarding at the uh, hockey rink and causing trouble, so why was he all on me? But that's what this song is about. Do you have any memories along those lines of, you know, bullying and uh, conflict kind of later on near near the end of our high school journey? I mean, I actually have a complete opposite recollection of it, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, um, I feel like by the 12th grade, um, the, the, the jocks, uh, in our school were, uh, a very small contingent and they were quite cool with us. The, um, the, the Bernie Dohens and the, uh, Rob Woke and, uh, Reggie Gamble and all those guys, they were into Public Enemy and NWA and um, they were quite cool with us. And the weirdos were the majority at our high school. As a matter of fact, skateboarders and weirdos from other schools would come and hang out at Neyland High School. So, I mean, we would we would skateboard at uh, lunchtime or on spares in the sort of, uh, I guess it was a, I guess it was a basketball court. Um, in the in the corner of the school there and like jason bell and uh other people people from other schools would come and hang out with us there and beyond the skateboarding circle there was like um um i don't know the sean belbar and tammy kenward and uh tomas from shiloh and his girlfriend um uh tammy and um so there was the shiloh kids there was uh you know and there and in the grades younger than us there was like joel melkoski who was you know um you know cooking cooking fried uh, grilling fried cheese uh, grilled cheese in the hallways there was lots of weirdos um there was lots of weirdos in our school and i feel like the jocks were the were the were the minority at that point, and and the, those jocks were were pretty uh, pretty cool with us. That's my recollection of of, of of the of the later of the later years um, where we kind of everybody got kind of cool with everyone else. But yeah, I re- uh, but I do remember a, a guy Billy that was sort of 
a last the last holdout. He was sort of the the um, he was he was sort of grasping at that sort of that that power that was uh, that was that was that was quite um, um, tenuous for him at the time. Yeah, because there was still like you're 100% true and about all those guys that were super cool with us and 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 obviously we're in grade 12 at this point, so we're you know we're not new kids in school, so we know our ways, we know everybody, we're r- relatively popular, I would say, mm-hmm. but um, but there was still sort of these holdouts. Like there was that other guy, remember the guy who had drove the five liter and who smashed his five liter a couple times? That guy was around who was kind of not was really that cool west something or something and then and then this billy guy there were still guys around and it was just like it was just so ridiculous at the end because it was one thing to be in grade 10 and get into a new school but now it was like to have any conflict you know at my own grad where i have all these people who are willing to stick up for me <laughs> It was just kind of it was kind of absurd you know it was like we kind of laughed it off but it was still i remember it still being annoying and you know not not pleasant um but you're totally right as far as um guys like bernie and all that who were very more into the athletic side of things definitely um you know being cool but with they us. were but they were also into rap and yeah uh, exactly and that's what to sort of bridged bridge the gap and every everybody was like you know and and bernie is bernie was just a weirdo as well yeah heart you know what i mean like he was really goofy and really fun and he uh, you know there was folks like that who were just looking at who were just found us to be fun guys and and uh, we found them to be fun people and we just got along I remember going to hanging out with Bernie, and going to uh, Clear Lake one time, and it was—I think it was around right the day that Check Your Head came out. So I'm not sure what year that would be, but Check Your Head came yeah, out. Yeah, '92. Yeah. Yeah, Check Your Head came out, and it was like, oh, I gotta check this out. And so listening to Check Your Head uh, for the first or second or third time in my shitty Honda Accord with Bernie Dohan driving up through um, uh, through, and I think I had to take him to Dauphin, and then we hit a deer on the way there or the way back or something. Our deer hit us. <laughs> Bernie's, Bernie's, Bernie was from Dauphin, I think. If yeah, I remember. yeah, something like that. Yeah, that was his hometown. And then I, so at the end of this song called Another Effing Jog, uh, I talk about, uh, it's a very short song and it's a fun little song, but at the end I talk about my Pizza Hut posse because there's this guy, I had a, I worked at Pizza Hut and I had a lot of friends who obviously worked there and one of them was um, a guy named Rob Lefave and he was, uh, was quick to stand up for me in those situations I remember when I was, you know, because I'm still just a, I'm, so, I'm a quote unquote vegetarian so I weigh about 130 pounds I got no meat on my bones and so some jock stepping to me is not not good but he would always stick up for me and so that got me thinking about um 
the jobs that we had in Brandon. Um, so I worked at Pizza Hut, and that was a really fun place to work. My friend, our friend Michelle uh, Blanchard, got us, got me a job there because originally I worked at um, Boston Pizza. I was a delivery boy, and then Boston Pizza shut down one day. And I showed up for work and there was no work to be done because they had closed the doors and locked them up. And so then shortly after I got a job at Pizza Hut, which was so much fun as a cook. So I met all of uh, Michelle's friends who worked there. It was almost like a family. There's all these people. And eventually... Patrick, and literally, literally family. It was Michelle's literally like sister Michelle's Dominique, sister. Yeah. And uh, then there was who, brothers. Uh, who you name dropped in... Um, in Duck Duck uh, Goose way back yeah. in the day, yeah. Dominique bake, bake a cake uh, like strawberry shortcake. Uh, that that was part of that crew as well. That's right. And then there was these brother cooks that were there, and then Rob McGregor was a good friend of ours who worked. That's where we met him originally because mm-hmm. he didn't go to the same school as us. Um, and then Patrick worked there eventually. So that was a really fun place to work. And Patrick told the story about you know being a delivery driver and using his float to buy buy um special orders from you at uh at the record baron so but i remember some of the jobs that you had being kind of a little more interesting and funny so talk about where you worked uh when you lived in brandon well my first job was at kmart um kmart (laughs) i was a porter which was basically the guy who my first i was to um collecting shopping carts when i and then uh Collecting, going around and getting garbage uh, from all the checkouts, and um, and uh, my main job was to uh, crush boxes with a giant box crushing machine in the back rooms, and then make these giant bales of crushed boxes. And my job every day, I would show up there at like I don't know five o'clock in the afternoon, and I would work from five till ten, and uh, there would there would be an entire room, uh, like a massive like with a like a 15 foot ceiling filled with boxes and my job was amongst getting all the other stuff to done was to was to crush all those boxes and have them all done and all my managers in retrospect thinking about all these managers who i looked up and thought were like you know old guys yeah. they were probably like in their mid to late 20s and they already had like three or four kids and they were just like wearing the same suit every day and they would always do things like they would always be like oh this bag of this bag of pampers has got a rip in it so we've got to write it off but don't throw it out just leave it at the back door you know and then they would drive <laughs> around and like you know that's how they got their their pampers is that they would just like you know kind of make a little rip and something and be like oh we can't sell that anymore and then they would like so you're gonna throw it throw it out but don't throw it in the dumpster just put it at the back door and then <laughs> and at 10 15 i would still be you know collecting carts and i'd see them you know filling their 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 car with all this stuff that they that they, you know, <laughs> rode off. Uh, but I got fired from that job. And then I got a job at Canadian Tire Night Crew. But before you go was, to Canadian Tire, I just want to circle back. So Kmart yeah. was at 34th and... Um, Victoria. 34th, 34th Victoria. So it was literally like 90 seconds for commute for you to go to work? Yeah, I lived right behind it on a street called Confederation Bay. And uh, yeah, it was just, I would... I would walk over and I think, you know, not just that experience, but I'm notoriously, I'm infamously late for everything. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's probably why is because I could, uh, you know, uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the micro, 
I could like literally leave my house 90 seconds before my shift started. And on top of that, the, the way the punch out card system worked at that time, it was like literally like you take, you grab your card off of a little rack on the wall and you like, ka-chunk, like punch <laughs> in. Yeah. And, and the punch in system was such that you weren't late and unless you punched in uh it was like in i think it was like in weird it was not five it was like six minute increments yeah that so makes it's sense. like you could you could be five minutes late and you would still be on time and so like i would literally leave my house <laughs> two two minutes late for work and then just like run in there and kachunk you know and be like Oh yeah, here I am at 5:05, but I'm not there at five. If I had punched in at 5:06, I would have been late, but I was still. So I think I learned some bad uh, <laughs> habits um, then. And on top of that, too, and like eventually when I had to work, some, you know, when I started working at Canadian Tire or something like that, everything in the city in Brandon is five minutes away by car, or so I thought. And yeah. so I would, you know, again, you would just like, oh, I have to, I have to be at work at Canadian Tire at 11 p.m. or whatever, because it was a, like I said, it was like the night crew. And so I would you know, literally leave work or leave home at 1055 and roll up there just in time. So I recall just learned, learned some bad habits. And didn't the manager, I seem to think the manager, I think his last name started with P or something like. Probert? Pro, pro, uh, pro, I, I think it was Probert, yeah. Who said like you would never amount to anything or something. No, no. Okay, so there's two. Probert was the guy who sent me home for wearing my Cypress Hill stoned is the way of the walk t-shirt. Because <laughs> as a porter, I was allowed to wear whatever I wanted. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, um, um <laughs> I wasn't beholden to any any outfit, um, but um, but um, oh god, turns out I got lots of Kmart stories. Um, but yeah, I was so I was wearing my Cypress Hill T-shirt, which had like the Cypress Hill logo, which I think was a skull on the front, and then I don't know, I had some sort of arrows through it or some sort of north, south, east, west compass. I don't know, I can't remember what it was, the Cypress Hill logo, but that was on the front, and then on the back it just said "Stoned is the way of the walk," and I remember getting sent home. Um, <laughs> you got yeah. fired from Kmart. Why did you just got fired? Just they were just tired of you, or was there a specific incident? I got fired because. Um, they had it was uh, leading up to Christmas, so this would have been like December of '92. Um, so I had worked at Kmart for a couple years at that point because I think I started at Kmart when I was in tenth grade. So now I'm in. Uh, actually, now I'm graduated, so now I'm you know in f whatever first year university, I guess. And um, it was uh, it was a busy time of year. They were like, okay, we've got to do some we've got to do an all-nighter or something like that. And so I remember them uh, asking me to be one of the people to work overnight. And I had never worked an overnight shift before. There was no, there was no real policy or no real, like, you know, it was just something they decided they needed to do. So a half dozen, a couple, a few managers and a few staff just did a, pulled an all-nighter to like, I don't know, stock the shelves in, in time for Christmas or something like that. And there was no indication that we were going to have a, um, you know, breaks or I don't, it was, there was just no clear communication. And, and plus I was not in overnight mode the way I was later in Canadian Tire when I would sleep all day and work all night. And so I was exhausted. And so I, I was remember working up in the, 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 
in the stock room all night and I just grabbed a two liter of Coca-Cola to get some caffeine and and was just drinking it. You know, it's not like I, I mean, maybe I was going to maybe I was going to steal it. Maybe I was going to pay for it when the when at the time in the morning when it came time. But <laughs> um, but whatever it is a two dollar bottle of Coca-Cola. And I guess they found they found it. And um, yeah, and then I got called into Probert's office and uh, uh, the next day and, and this um, this manager named Shelly, I think her name was, was standing there. And yeah, they, they fired me, made me write out a report to say that I'd stolen this bottle of Coca-Cola. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I got fired. back to the pizza hut thing was um because you talk about the uh the coca drinking coca-cola at pizza hut we would go crazy on the chocolate milk and it was a i think it was a gray area where we were supposed to pay for it but they had you know jugs of chocolate milk and we would just drink them uh especially in the morning when we were the prep cooks like on the weekends um you know the more experienced cooks which i got to be would be the prep cooks and they would make the dough and all the ingredients for the day and so you'd start at seven in the morning. So you'd start and go there and just start drinking chocolate milk, <laughs> you know, by the liter and not pay for it or anything. Free mm-hmm. pizza and free chocolate milk and just disgusting diet throughout the day. Because you could easily drink two or three liters of chocolate milk when you're only But you were still technically vegetarian. I was a vegetarian. I would have <laughs> mushroom. I would have mushroom pizza with extra cheese and wash it down with chocolate milk or Coca-Cola. <laughs> sub because you didn't like a lot of different kinds of vegetables so i remember your go-to your go-to vegetarian sub if i remember correctly was tomato cheese and mustard sounds about right (laughs) (laughs) was there Uh, even lettuce i don't even know if there'd be no hell no you didn't like lettuce it was tomato cheese i came around on lettuce later in life but uh On my own in a big town First year out of the house I get to pick now No more meatloaf No more Brussels sprouts No more balanced meals To have to fuss about I ate cereal for dinner Cold pizza in the summer And soup in the winter I ate cereal for lunch, man Captain Crunch and Count Chocula I ate cereal at midnight Snacking while cramming for exams It's a bitch, right? I ate cereal for breakfast Went like a year without seeing any lettuce I didn't do it cause it's cheap I didn't do it for the freedom You know what? I did it cause sugar and milk is good eating After a night at the club It's icy and pancakes with Kent and Jay Hum The next morning I stay home Skip a few lectures, copy your friend's notes For lunch it's chocolate and coke Fruit punch or something with glucose And if you ask, you're never too old For two kids packs on milk and served cold Some may do it, cause they're dead broke I ain't gonna front, mom covered my rent, yo 
drinking like a gallon of chocolate milk Stomach's so full if you move and get very ill Playing Super Mario till thumbs were sore Then heading on back to the corner store You know the feeling I did it cause sugar and milk is good eating Did I mention I wouldn't eat meat then? Listen to the Smiths too much in grade 10 Vegetarian that only ate french fries No time for salad, only fruit from apple pies Red dye number 5 and Flintstone vitamins Had kinfolk of vitamin worrying Stressed about my pale complexion 130 in Far from a healthy specimen Dirty and loving it all on a stack of cereal boxes in the hall closet Eating on my own still, cheating on my taxes Just to meet my phone bill, reading through my will I'm leaving my records and cereal Will General Mills be attending the burial? All from my daily feeding I did it cause sugar and milk is good eating uh, okay, that song is called Cereal for Dinner. That is from my mastermind project of 2005 when I was just called McEnroe. And um, so that song is about when I moved out of, uh, moved on my own in Winnipeg and just ate junk food because I was a vegetarian, but I didn't eat any vegetables. So I would eat cereal and chocolate bars and French fries, lots of starch, lots of sugar. Uh, that's how I was living, and um, so I just thought I'd throw that in there because that's where the uh, topic turned. I'm going to get into another track now from the Brandon album. This song is called The Planet, 92 The Planet, and this is specifically about uh, packing up the car, moving to Winnipeg, and starting to experience the big city life where, um, you know, I knew some people from Brandon who'd moved to Winnipeg already, so I was hanging out with them, I was going to the Albert on the punk rock night, I was going skateboarding with all these new people, doing all these things, and uh, so it was really fun. So here's the song, it is called 92 The Planet. Bash, I had to leave, I had to get away High school was over, I had to jet for a better day Kissed my mama, gave my pops a nod Just a two hour drive so it's not so hard Through the duffel in the back of the old Accord Full of all types of vinyl though it's old and worn Plus my Heyman bass and all I can afford Is one tank of gas, can't go back, it's only forward I'm sort of freaking this boy from the east end Alone in the big city, freedom every weekend I'm joining bands, not hanging with the geeks in Engineering class, go skating every evening With RK, hanging out on Colony Talking to some girls, but none of them are calling me I'm at the Albert with punk rockers probably Trying to make a name though, many would not agree Gonna make it, goddammit I'm from B-R-A-N-D on the planet I never fake it, just slam it Out of B-R-A-N-D on the planet B-R-A-N-D on the planet B-R-A-N-D on the planet I met J-Hum round about exam time Should have been studying, trying to write a damn rhyme I'm getting B's and C's, grades cratering My rep gets bigger, I'm a C mainstay it seems I can DJ your skate comp, never in school Call me Ferris Bueller's day off I'm getting 
getting guest list easy with the name drop then hanging at a skate spot running from a fake cop i'm at sk8 with steph and jai digging that into the music on a record buy i'm broke as hell with rent barely getting by real money spent on skate tees and fresh jive playing foosball late night at bar i not in the cafe hanging on the laundry side whether skating in a pack or laying down a track left the wheat city never looking back i'm gonna make it god damn it i'm from b-r-a-n-d on the planet i never fake it just slam it out of b-r-a-n-d on the planet b-r-a-n-d on the planet b-r-a-n-d on the planet Gotta give a shout out Guru, Premier, Gangstar This is CKND TV Winnipeg Give me just a couple minutes about that working at that record bearing it seemed like a kind of a cool little piece of time where there's so many cool people working there and so much good music getting ordered in and you know he talked about how it proved that there was a market for you know non-mainstream music in brandon like a serious market for it you know a serious audience and uh so what do you remember about working at that record baron being able to order things in and, you know, seeing its influence on some of the people coming in and absorbing it. I remember before I worked there, because I guess I started there in the, maybe in the summer of 94, uh, but shortly before I worked there, I remember, I remember them, just uh, Carruthers and Neufeld calling me in uh, and they would, they were being very coy about it. Oh, you know, why, you know, you should come, come, come to the store. And I said, I, and I walked in and I was like, okay, what, what is it you want? And then they just, uh, hit play on the, uh, ill communication advanced promo, which came out on cassettes back then. All the advanced promo tapes, uh, uh, albums were, were literally on cassette, even into the mid nineties. Yeah. They were like these, like, you know, generic, like photocopied covers that just had the track listings on them. But I remember them, you know, dropping, hitting play on the, the ill communication. And I was like, oh, what is this? You know, and uh, that it was, I for, finally gathered that this was the new Beastie Boys. and. You know, Carruthers and and Newfield standing behind the counter, with these smug grins on their face, and you know, so pleased that they were able to introduce Tyler to the to the new you know to to play him the new Beastie Boys album, and uh, it was it was pretty pretty rad. And beyond that, once I did start working there, I just I. You know, the people who were working in there at the time, Newfeld, Carruthers, Sean Vermette, we were all interested. We would just order so much uh, import music. You know, yeah. I would we, we would get these, I don't know, maybe cargo records or whatever it was the importer was at the time, these, these like weekly, and I would just go and order every, every rep 
record that was available at the time. So I remember, you know, again, this would have been 94. So I remember getting uh, the Beat Nuts Street Level album or Hard to Earn by Gangstar or Down South Lost in Brooklyn. If you, anybody knows this, that album, it's a pretty pretty obscure record, but, but uh, you know, applicable to, to Farm Fresh because I did scratch um, their stuff on uh, Space Part 3. Yeah. Um, um, you know, just so many... What if, if there was a rap record on that, on the weekly, you know, releases, I would order it and we would just end up having like thousands of dollars worth of product sitting on the shelves that we were like, you know, just waiting for our paychecks so that we could like, you know, and then we would have to sort of like, you know, I can only really afford to buy a few of these and each one of these records probably costs $40 even with our discount because they're all imports and but uh yeah we um beyond like a handful of people like Don Phillips as Ken mentioned last in the last episode Don who worked there, who ran the bookstore who was you know coming there he had his hold piles were as big as ours the only difference was is he could afford to just swoop in and buy them all at, at once you know he's like well what did i what did i got this this you know and certain things crothers would just like i think don will like this and he would just like okay and then he would just like buy a stack of literally 20 cds the rest of us are just like have as much stuff on hold but we can only buy one or two things at a time <laughs> but um yeah i mean we we didn't really care what other people were were interested in, you know, because we were in Brandon. We didn't have a lot of faith that people were 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 interested in cool things. There was just a handful of people out there that was interested in cool things, and and the everyone else were worked there. So it was just it's it was really just, just us about buying, getting for buying, yourself and getting stuff for ourselves. Yeah, and we were really doing that, you know. I mean, I remember in grade twelve that record baron being really important for us to get music and. I go there, buy CDs all the time. Like when I more, you know, like there is a time where I transitioned from from alternative fully to rap, but that was probably after I left Brandon. But when I was in, definitely when I was in grade 12, you know, like I remember going in there and it being like, there's this new band, Smashing Pumpkins on the day came out. You should get this, like maybe Carruthers saying I should get it or just seeing it and trying it and things like that. Like just a lot of that kind of, we were obviously getting our rap, in, rap influence from elsewhere, so we were then coming in and being like, you know, I need, I need this. I need diggable planets. I need, yeah, I need derelicts of dialect by third base. I need whatever it is. We just, uh, you know, so we were coming in looking for that, and they were, and uh, they were, they were influencing us in other ways. Okay. So basically, we start this group. We're called Farm Fresh. Um, you know, we've talked on various 
podcast about our history, about how we got going and all that. But what do you remember about the reaction specifically in Brandon to a rap group in Brandon? Like, because you have a better memory than me. Like, obviously, we and do you remember how we even got on that Manitoba midday? Like, for those who don't know, we were on a Manitoba midday show and we performed Celine Dion right before our first gig with Jamie Aiken. Like, who got us that gig? Who got us on Manitoba midday? Did you? No, no. I can. I don't even know how we got that gig. The gig, gig. Yeah. I. I maybe it was like through the university because it was a. I mean, maybe it was a university produced event. So maybe it was somebody either because there was a sort of fledgling campus radio. Uh, not it wasn't FM yet. It was just sort of closed circuit. And I'm thinking maybe like Jeff Scott or somebody involved in the um, campus radio at, at Brandon University or somebody involved in the executive um, of the students union. But I, 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 for some reason, I want to think it was Jeff Scott um, who was involved in the campus radio, who got us that got us on the on the bill opening up for Red Fisher and Meat Rack. And I yeah. can only presume it was him who did uh, who got got us some media attention, i.e., got us on Manitoba Midday because of the because of uh, you know yeah, the weirdness of having a a, 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 rap, a rap group who called who you know who referred to themselves as hick hick hop or whatever it was <laughs> that uh, yeah. And what else? Like, did you do you remember any um, media coverage in? The Brandon Sun, or and also, what about the strange tape release we did at at Vincent Massey High School? What else did we do that was weird in Brandon? Obviously, playing I, the folk fest is not really that strange, but you know, in a town like Brandon, it seemed like we did some different things happened. Yeah, I mean, I don't recall us getting any coverage in the Brandon Sun um, I do recall that gig January of 93 uh, of, of us opening um, for Red Fisher and Meat Rock was mentioned in McLean's magazine That's there, right. was a, there was like a national there was an article about I don't know um, I think it might have been an article. I think McLean's maybe like writes universities every year or something like that. And so there was this issue about universities and then sort of then there were some sort of think pieces about demographics and what university students do, yada, yada, yada. I don't really recall, but I do recall that within a month of us doing our first ever actual real show that we were already mentioned in passing, but mentioned international right. magazine i think i have so, that uh, i have that yeah i have that uh, issue that we were mentioned in which is so strange yeah so i mean it was just like meanwhile in brandon 200 people have congregated at the bar to see a punk rock show with a opening act by fire fresh you know whatever the mention was it was like and then it goes on to talk about what actually the article's about but it was like we were all like hey we're in a national magazine and we're we only you know We've only existed for a, a couple months now, and whatever. Yeah, that was that was weird, and 
it wasn't like a review or anything like that. It was just like literally just being mentioned. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as far as like other media and then, yeah, uh, I mean, that's 93. And then by the time, I mean, doing that show at the farm, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we did between that first show in early 93 to releasing the album in late 94. Yeah. Um, but between then, I mean, we played in Winnipeg a couple times, once at the Albert, once at the junkyard. We um, played the Folk Fest. Um, I uh, got myself a real turntable from uh, grapes on on uh, the on the North Hill. I got myself an actual Tech Twelve instead of just the instead of just the uh, you know the, the the family wagon that we <laughs> that we were using that we stole from Brian Hayes' parents. Um, but uh, yeah, wasn't there I a mean, bit of a story of getting that turntable? Like, didn't didn't you trade it? Yeah. Or is there some so like, Patrick for- Patrick worked at Grapes. Um, and he was like a line cook. Pip, Pip was a line cook at uh, at Grapes. And so Grapes was, you know, there was Grapes here in Winnipeg. There was a few, four, three or four locations, Grapes on Main, Grapes Pier 7. Um, it was a bit of a, I don't know, I don't know what, if it was a, na- a national chain or just a Winnipeg chain. It also had a, a, yeah, I a think Brandon it was, location. I think it was just a Manitoba thing. Maybe yeah. a little, I think they had a, one or two in Saskatchewan, but that was it. And so there was this grapes uh, north on the North Hill, and I remember being there, uh, maybe picking up Patrick or waiting for Patrick to be done. And I noticed that, you know, because they have a dance floor. I mean, um, Kenny mentioned in the last episode. Ken Jaworski mentioned in the last episode that eventually they started doing shows at the North Hill Inn, which was, you know, that's that was Grapes on Main back in the day. And so they had a dance floor and a, you know, a pseudo stage. It had a wall around it, so it was more or less like a, an area that you could put, put but it was it was the stage for, for, yeah. for, for all intents and purposes. Uh, um, but they had this little DJ booth there outside of the, next to the, to the dance floor. And I looked in there and you know, uh, there was a big stack of CDs on top of this dusty Tech 12 turntable, and it was like the dust cover was on it, which was good because it was very dusty. And I was like, "Well, that's that that shit's not being used at all." And so I was like, "You know, Pat, Pat, get, who's the manager? Where's the manager?" And um, and so I spoke to that. I was like, "I was like, do you even use that turntable that's in there?" And he's like, well, you know, uh, sometimes we do, you know, right away, he's sort of onto what I'm doing. He's like, well, sure we do. Yeah, we use it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we use. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, if you don't use it or not planning on using it, I would borrow it or I would like to buy it off you. And he was like, huh, well, uh, how much would you want to, to buy it for? And I was like, a hundred dollars. And uh, he's he's like hundred dollars. Do they even make records anymore? And I was like, not really, no. But but uh, you know, I I collect old records. You know, I'm 
I collect old records. I just want to have some whatever. And um, and so he he walked away just think you know he took my five twenties that I I go to the ATM at the in the lobby and get some money out. Um, and I buy and I yeah so that was my first Tech Twelve was uh, and 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 instantly my scratching became you know I, I remember making scratch tapes. I didn't have any like my my uh, my my battle records for lack of better terms were comedy records back then. They were like yeah. um, they were Bill like Cosby. Uh, yeah like the Fat Albert Fat Albert stuff or like there was this um this uh, trucker comedy record. Yep. Gene Tracy's tr- Double Collection, I think the name of the album was. It was just like Truck Stop, a truck stop comedian. Yeah. And I remember just like going through that and finding like, you know, not five minutes ago, but right now, like all this sort of like sounds that I would just like, you know, just practice scratching with. And I have tons of, um, tons of tapes somewhere of like, me just recording myself scratching over over Gangstar or Third Base or whatever whatever records I was listening to at the time but but um, yeah I get my, my my scratching got instantly a hundred times better with a oh, real yeah. turntable yeah. thanks to Grapes mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's funny that you knew how did do you remember how you knew that that was the turntable like that was the coveted you know the the gold standard for turntables well i mean this would have been yeah i mean this would have been 92 93 or something like that at this point so i think um i think we knew what i think we knew a lot about rap at that point you know i mean we think about we were watching um you know we were watching arsenio hall and you know, Soul Train and Neo People's Party Machine and In Living Color, and we were seeing, we were seeing, you know, not to mention all the rap videos we were seeing. We were, we, I think, and reading Source Magazine in the back of Source Magazine, you could probably like buy those turntables, you know, mail order and stuff like that. So I think we, I think we knew, but um, I can't say specifically. I remember where I where I clued in that the, that the sort of industry standard was the Techniques 1200. But but I, I, I kind of knew that when I saw it, that that was, that was it. You know, that was what I needed. Right. All right. So let's play one more track. This is the last track on the Brandon album. It's the last track we'll play on the podcast. This is 92 No Clichés Farm Fresh. So check this out. This is kind of about getting going as Farm Fresh and a little bit about what we're talking about. And then I'll come back and wrap it up with Tyler. Suck 
Oscars in the dust, thinking rap city a bus, playing dubs in the back of an Acadian, making beats till the sun's up, never taking drugs, just pumped up, high on the adrenaline, building drums with no subs, but some guts love, we had no posse and no manager, just us, our parents tolerant, but really didn't trust us, they said say in school, or they would have to cut us off from the trust fund, just kidding, there was none of that sitting in our bank accounts anyway We borrowed tape decks and mixes that we never gave back We would jack you for your stickers just to fix the fade And when our mix was played, they knew we didn't play The beats we made on day one made the speakers shake The dry wit made side split and blew the kids away Of the time and defined by what we didn't say No cliches So there was this um, at Brown University, because Brown University was a music school, there was some sort of like date with a demo that Manitoba Music back then was called Maria, um, was hosting where they were like, we'll go we'll go and do some outreach in the smaller communities. So we're gonna go to Brandon and we're gonna have a date with a demo where all of these um, Brandon groups can play us their demo tapes. And it was, yeah, I would think it would have been probably Gaylene from Manitoba Music again. It was called Murray at the time. And I also remember the uh, sort of industry expert that they had brought was Blair Packham. Right. who was the former singer of the group The Jitters. If anybody remembers, The Jitters had a had a hit on much music called the, uh, what was it? It was like, must have been crazy playing hot, should have played it cool. Now I'm just the last of the red hot fools, whatever that song is. Uh, that was The Jitters, it was Blair Packham. So, um, but uh, you, were, you were living in Winnipeg at the time. Uh, but Patrick and I were still in Brandon. And I remember having zero interest in attending this thing. We were like, we don't even have a demo, whatever, whatever. But Carruthers was saying, I'm going to go because Carruthers was writing songs and recording songs himself. And um, he's like, and you guys should go. You should go. You know, he was being... Um, persistent and we were just sort of sort of sloughing it off we didn't really care but I, and but i remember whatever it was i think it was like a sunday morning and i think even patrick had spent the night because patrick again he lived in the east end and for him to get home some some nights he would just end up crashing in my basement and i remember that particular night getting a phone or that particular morning getting a phone call 
from Carruthers saying, why aren't you coming to, why aren't you here? You should come to this. And I was like, oh God. And Patrick was already at my house. So I was like, okay, let's just go. So we took the the demo, the, the audio recording of us performing Duck, Duck, Goose at um, the Folk Fest earlier that summer. Uh, and we took it and queued it up and took it. And we went to this room at the School of Music at Brandon University. And there was this little panel of people from Manitoba Music and Blair Packham from the Jitters. And it was all well and good. And I think they had nice things to say about our songs. Yes. Um, I recall being there. You were there? I think I was there because I remember wanting to go. I remember it being like... I remember getting up in the morning and it's like, you guys didn't want to go. And it was like, well, nothing's ever going to happen if we never go and do something. Mm -hmm. So I remember kind of dragging... I do remember going and and you know kind of being like you know being on the edge of like hey we could not go it'd be easier not to go but then we went mm-hmm. yeah and i remember Carruthers actually phoning us and and hounding us and telling us that we should be going right um but literally yeah and, and i think you know they had nice things to say that i think they were surprised that it wasn't a I remember them asking that it, they were surprised that it was a live recording because it sounded good, I guess. Yeah. And I think literally the next day, which was a Monday, um, somebody phoned Record Baron trying to track Farm Fresh down. And it was turned out to be Bonnie Fedro of, at the time, Warner Music. Yes. Um, and I guess they had read some sort of um some sort of um um recap of the afternoon who where where the the recap was well yeah there was this country band empty gun whatever whatever but the highlight was this rap group from who sat you know whatever like it was just this whatever so i believe the the, uh a and r from mortar started calling looking for us and i remember Carruthers was like phoning us up and saying somebody from warner just called looking for you and i was like get out of here i just couldn't believe him (laughs) i didn't believe him he's like no they're calling me trying to find you i was like this is so weird and yeah from there we had a a nice you know conversation and a nice relationship with bonnie for you know for you know that following year after the record came out we went to music we went to Canadian Music Week at the Music West, and she was taking us around and introducing us to people. And, you know, she was a great supporter of us. And she was just sort of like keeping her eye on us to see what we would do. And it was very much an ego boost for us or something that said to us that we could we could we could hang on a um, on a larger scale. You yeah. know, that we were getting this attention and then that we should keep trying and, with you know, and, and get serious and and um, yeah, it was a it was a significant afternoon for us, I think. Yeah, and we were almost didn't bother going. That's right. <laughs> a metaphor uh, for our. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. I want to thank uh, DJ Honeycut, Tyler Sneesby for joining me today. Thanks, Sean Carruthers for joining me. This is the last episode of the podcast, so I got to thank all the guests, Derek Gunlickson. Um, 
Stefan Goulet, Allison Walden, Patrick Skeen, Ken Jaworski for taking the time out. It was super fun to catch up with everybody. And I want to thank uh, David at UGS Meg for hosting the podcast. Um, and I want to thank you all for listening and for everyone who sends notes saying that they enjoyed it and uh, enjoyed listening. That's really what uh, I do this for. So getting the feedback that you like the music or that you like the podcast is really rewarding because really I'm not a touring musician. I don't really see people face to face. So that's kind of all I do this for is, you know, put it out there and hope someone enjoys it. It's nice to hear if you do. Um, Thanks for listening. And um, like I said, the album is called Brandon. It is on Peanuts and Corn Records. You can get it at bandcamp.peanutsandcorn. No, sorry, peanutsandcorn.bandcamp.com. And it is also on all the streaming services, Apple Music, Spotify, etc. So please give it a listen. It's uh, out in its entirety Thursday at 9 p.m. Pacific time, midnight Eastern. So you can hear it Thursday night late or Friday starting. And, uh, you know, again, let me know what you think. I'm on uh, social media. I'm on Twitter at Big McEnroe. I'm on Instagram at Big McEnroe. And, um, you know, sharing it, telling people what you think about it sure does help a lot because, again, I'm not out on the road working it in the clubs. So really, the word of mouth is kind of all I got. Thank you so much for listening. And we will catch up to you soon, hopefully with a new project of some kind. we got lots of other good music coming out. Bazooka Joe 204, Pip Skid, um, Park Leg Setting. Good things are brewing. Take care of yourselves. Goodbye.